This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and joining me is Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, as well as the advisor for Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, bro. Hi, Allison. And Morgan Housel is also with us today. He's a behavioral finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and we're happy you're here, too. I'm happy as well. You're here on a very special day because... Is that true? It is. Happy anniversary, Robert Brokamp. Happy well. anniversary, Allison. And you too, Rick. And Rick. From behind the window that no one can see because you're listening to this on your car somewhere or something like that. The traditional gift for the first year is paper. So I'm thinking you could just write me a check. <laughs> yeah? Maybe. I will. Or I'll have the Federal Reserve write it for me. Can we confirm what anniversary this is? Oh, it's the anniversary of the show. That might be pertinent information to someone listening. Sorry, I assumed you guys knew. <laughs> it's the anniversary of our show. I have known Bro for many years okay. beyond um, beyond this show. But yeah, it's but our we anniversary. We were just friends, and now we're podcasters. 52 episodes later, here we are. This is number 53. So congrats, man. We did it. And to you as well. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Oh, man. Us. Thanks to all of our listeners. We've uh, we've made dozens of jokes about the villages, many too many jokes about my choice of footwear, and Bro once laughed so hard he broke a bookshelf. That's so. true. I think that got edited out of that podcast, but it was quite funny. We have fun. On today's episode, Morgan Housel, like I said, is here to help you carry your side of the conversation if someone wants to talk to you about the Federal Reserve or interest rates this week. God forbid. And then I'm going to test Morgan and Robert's grasp of greenbacks. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. The Federal Reserve is meeting this week, and everyone and their dog is expecting higher interest rates as an outcome. But what does that even mean? How should I feel about this? And more importantly, how can I sound like the smartest person in the room should the topic come up? Morgan Housel, behavioral finance expert at The Fool, is here to help me answer those questions. But first, I've kind of written a little term paper about the Fed and what they do. I know, this is exciting. Here we go. (laughs) This is going to be really good. All right, my term paper. So that we can all understand what is the Fed, where did it come from, what does it do generally, I will need your guys' help and input from now and and then. But are you ready? I'm ready. We're ready. All right, buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. The Federal Reserve was created in 1913 with the goal of maintaining confidence in our monetary and banking system. So picture it. When it was founded, there were more than 30,000 different varieties of currency in this country. That's because... Basically, anyone could make their own money. Banks, states, regional governments, and even individuals. So, the money supply in the U.S. was unstable. You'd get bank runs. Cats and dogs were living together. It was bedlam. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we move on? That's actually the whole history of the Fed. No! That's that's it. That's it. I crushed it. I think we can leave now because you already are going to be the smartest person in the room when it comes to talking about the Fed. You remember the cats and dogs? Yep. So, history is fun. Now we can move on to the structure. And this is where I'm going to tell you to go ahead and get that pot of coffee brewing. Because the Fed is both public and private. It has 12 regional reserve banks around the country and one board of governors in D.C., which has seven members that are appointed by the government and confirmed by the Senate. The board of governors represents the public governmenty side of things, while the 12 regional banks represent the private sector, which I think is essentially like the banks in this country. Is that correct? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. okay. So, uh, what am I missing before we move on to a brief Econ 101 primer on inflation versus recessions? Anything else we want to add? I was looking for more cats and dogs. I think that's about it. That's it it for the cats and dogs. I think that's it, though. Okay, okay, good. It's not the same thing as like the Department of Treasury or something like that. It does have a certain level of independence from the government. 
as opposed to many other aspects of what you read about, like the IRS and people like that. All right. So, hopefully your coffee is ready by now, because let's talk about the Fed's mandates. One, it is to keep prices of stuff stable, and two, it's to keep employment stable, all the while maintaining moderate long-term interest rates. So, Morgan. That's right. It's your turn. All right. To remind, you're the little sidebar in my term paper. <laughs> so, remind our listeners about supply and demand of money and the balance between inflation and recession, because basically everything is about supply and demand. Yeah, that's right. So, in the economy, we make stuff. We make cars and we make services like, uh, you know, car washes and whatnot. So, that's what the economy produces. And then there's a certain amount of money that is chasing that stuff. And when there is too much money chasing that stuff or too little money or too much stuff or too little stuff, you get changes in inflation. So, if you have more money uh-huh. or less stuff, Okay. You're gonna ha- you can have inflation. Okay. If you have less money or more stuff, oh. then you can have deflation. There will always be a little bit of inflation just because of businesses. My son asked me this why we're at Johnny Rockets having hamburgers. He says, Why is that? Like, because people like Johnny Rockets would always love to charge you higher p- prices. So they're always gonna push it a little higher. But at some point you push it too high, then people are gonna go to other restaurants. So there will always be a little little bit of inflation. The Fed also, though, doesn't want deflation. They didn't want prices to go down because then companies like Johnny Rockets are going to make less money and they're going to start start laying people off. So they want just a little bit of inflation, but not too much. All right. So the Fed has tools in their bag to have just a little inflation and not too much. And the main one is buying and selling treasuries. And here's where I'm really going to be looking at you guys to be like, am I right? Do I have this? Is this straight? Because it always gets confusing in my head. All right. Basically, if there's too much money in circulation, which could lead to too much inflation, then the Fed sells Treasury bonds to banks. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then what that does is that pulls money out of circulation. That's right. right. Because the the banks give them cash for those bonds. Right. And then they just set it aside. And it just goes away. Oh, it just disappears? It just disappears. Okay. Right. And the banks don't have that money to lend, which means they're not lending as much, and so people can't buy as much stuff or start as many businesses and all that. All right. Now, conversely, if there's too little money in circulation, which could lead to a recession, they buy bonds from the banks in exchange for money. So they basically give the banks the money for the bonds. And That's then right, there's yeah. more money in circulation. So the banks Ideally. Give, so the banks give the Fed bonds and the Fed gives them cash in return. Right. So it was what I just explained what all that quantitative easing was about. Well, like what was quantitative easing? Yeah, so normally when the Fed would r- raise or lower interest rates, they would do exactly that. They would buy or sell bonds from banks. They would do it with short-term bonds. Quantitative easing was this new thing, but it was it was the same mechanics of what we just talked about. They just did it with long-term bonds instead, because the Fed had already cut interest rates down to zero. So you couldn't cut them anymore. So they couldn't buy any more short-term bonds. So what are they going to do? They're just going to go out and buy long-term bonds. Actually, that was really the only difference between normal rate cutting and quantitative easing. And we should probably make the connection here between um, the supply of money and interest rates, right? Because if there's less money out there, then it's more precious, and your and interest rates are essentially the price of money, right, right? Exactly. And so that's why when they're doing all this buying and selling of bonds and changing the supply of money in the country, interest rates go up and down. That's right. Do I have that's this? Right. You got it. You do. Yes. I haven't written a term paper in so long, and I 
Okay, great. All right. So, the Fed also, the Fed does a ton of stuff, by the way. They monitor banking operations in the nation. They produce a ton of economic reports and they do housekeeping stuff. Like they're the clearinghouse for our checks. Um, but we'll save that for another episode because that's not what the big Fed meeting is about this week. Morgan, what is the big Fed meeting about this week? It's uh, very likely they're going to raise interest rates for the first time since 2006. Which is a long time. We've never gone that long without raising interest rates. Which means they'll be was, buying was, bonds. It means they'll be selling, selling bonds. Selling bonds. Dang they've it. been buying bonds for years. Now they'll be selling bonds, which is, means they're going to start pulling a little bit of cash out of the economy, and interest rates will go up. Right, and that's an important point because they're going to be target what's called the Fed funds target rate, and they don't, but they don't set that rate necessarily. They go into the market to try to influence, influence the it. rate. So they try to influence it by selling bonds until it gets to their target that they're looking for. So if the Fed wants interest rates to say be one percent, they can go in and sell bonds until the interest rate fluctuates to around one percent, and that's how they achieve it. But there's no, you know, dial on the Fed's desk where they can just say, "Let's do one percent and hit a button and all of a sudden it's one percent." Zing! Right. Yeah. That goes. So how should I feel about this? Because like, should I expect like when they come out and they say, "Oh, we're going to raise interest rates or whatever," they, however they're going to phrase it, um, is the market going to go bananas? Are people going to be mad? How should how should I feel? Well, I think there are two things to think about. One, when interest rates go up, that'll mean the interest rates on mortgages and credit cards and auto loans will likely go up as well. But the reason the Fed is raising rates is because they feel pretty good about the economy because unemployment's low and wages are starting to tick up, and the Fed feels good about that. The reason that they would raise interest rates, one of the reasons at least, is because if the economy gets too strong, starts going too fast, that's when you can see a big pickup in inflation. So that raising interest rates is almost like putting the brakes on the economy because they think it might has a possibility of running too fast. So you got to control it a little bit. So that's a good sign that the Fed thinks the economy is strong enough to do this. Last time it happened was back in about a little more than 10 years ago, 2003, 2004, 2005, in that range. If you think back to those times, times were perfectly fine back then. They raised rates and, and you know, the economy didn't collapse. That happened several years years later, but so it didn't it doesn't spell doom if the if they decide to raise interest rates. We're all going to be okay. You know, you, right. you can think of cutting interest rates like medicine. It's when you cut interest rates. In theory, that's good for the economy. That helps juice the economy. But it's medicine because the patient is sick. So normally, when the Fed is cutting rates, even though it's good for the economy, it's a symbol. It's a symbolic of something else bad happening. And right now, we're taking the medicine away, which that might sound bad. Less medicine, but we're doing it because the patient's a lot healthier than it used to be. That's a really good metaphor. Did you come up with that all by yourself? I did just now. Wow. <laughs> did you really impressive. come up with that just right now? <laughs> is it, is it that impressive? Yes, it's very hard to come up with effective metaphors, let alone that quickly. Well, I'm done then. This is why we have you. This is why we have you. Yeah, you're done. Like that was great. All right. So that kind of sets the table for what we're going to call five fun facts about the Federal Reserve to fascinate your friends. Yeah? That's I'm good. Right. I like that. Because like we said, we want you to sound like an intelligent person when you're at those cocktail parties that we don't get invited to. Um, and someone happens to be like, well, you know what the Fed did, blah, 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 blah. And then you can just like, boom, own that conversation. <laughs> I'm excited. All right. The first fun fact is that the Fed doesn't actually set, you touched on this already, but the Fed doesn't actually set your interest rate on your car loan or your mortgage. No. You know, I mean, the interest rate that you'd pay on your credit card or your car loan or your mortgage is set by the bank that is lending you that money. 
but the bank is going to be influenced by what rates the Fed is, is moving around because the banks are borrowing money from each other on an interest rate that is set by the Fed. So the bank's lending rate, the, the money that the bank gets money at, is influenced by the Fed, and that's going to influence the rate that you lend at. Right. It's increasing the at. bank's cost of yeah. business, so they're going to try to pass that on. But all those rates are are influenced by other factors, the market for mortgages. And, and if you're going to get an individual loan, your your credit score will play a big part of it, too. Um, so you'll people will start to panic about, like, oh, no, I better go buy a house now because the Fed is going to raise rates. But very few people expect that mortgage rates are going to skyrocket because of this. All right, the Fed. Here's the next fun, fascinating fact: the Fed doesn't create money usually. I'm yeah. still unclear about this one. So there's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a big misconception, and it's put out there a lot that the Fed is injecting money into the economy. That the Fed is printing money and just kind of throwing it around the economy, like literal the, money, the, like they literally print dollars and throw them in, or. Some people would think that, but even if you think it's just digital money, like you're just putting it, there's still an impression that the Fed is making money and just kind of sloshing it around the economy. And it's, that's not really how it works. New money is created when a bank, a private bank like Citigroup or JP Morgan, makes a loan. That's how new money is created. And the Fed doesn't really have any control about on that. They can try to influence that with lower interest rates and by changing the amount of what are called bank reserves, which is money that banks hold at the Fed. So they can try to influence it, but they really don't have any power over it. And when the economy is weak and banks aren't lending that much, which has been the case for the past seven years, you're not going to really ignite a lot of inflation. You're not really injecting a lot of new cash into the economy, no matter what the Fed does. And that's why I think there's this big disconnect between, over the last seven years, people saying, look, the Fed printed $4 trillion of new money. But we haven't had a big burst of inflation. Why did that happen? It's because the Fed didn't really print $4 trillion and put it in the economy. They printed $4 trillion with the hope that it would increase bank lending, but it didn't. And that's why there's this disconnect between the two. So the Fed can try to create new money, but it's really up to private banks to do it. And if they're not going to do it, it's not going to inject more money into the economy. Except in cases of extreme emergency, like the bailouts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are always little technicalities. Like there was, you know, back in 2008, uh, the Fed was loaning money directly to AIG and and some other large banks, uh, so that's a little different. But those loans were by, were paid off as well. So even that, the cash didn't really start flowing into Main Street. Yeah, which leads us into the next part, where the where the other fun, fascinating fact is that the Fed is actually a bank and it is extremely profitable. That's right. Yeah, the you know the Fed makes makes profit just like any other bank. It has assets that it owns, and those assets pay interest. And the Fed has expenses, and after you subtract those, you get profit. And in the Fed's case, almost all of the profit, about 98%, goes back to the U.S. Treasury, which means it goes back to taxpayers. And over the last seven years, when the Fed's balance sheet has been really big from buying so many Treasury bonds, that profit has been hundreds of billions of dollars that has benefited taxpayers to reduce the deficit. It's particularly during the Great Recession, it went and bought in all kinds of distressed debt, mortgage-backed securities and things that eventually often did recover in price, and they made yeah. huge profits, and that yeah. all got sent back to the U.S. Treasury. Yeah. All right, so next one. Banks all have preferred stock in the Fed. They are all part owners of the Fed. Yeah, this is a point that I think is not that big a deal, but it's great if you are a conspiracy theorist and want to think that the Fed is really out to get you. The Fed is owned, in effect, by banks in America. Big banks like Bank of America and Citigroup, they all own stock in the Fed that pays a dividend. 
It's really just kind of a technical point, though, because for one, they can't sell that stock, they can't trade it, so it really doesn't have that much practical value. And, and the banks don't control what the Fed is going to do either. So it's really like this technical point. But a lot of people will bring that up as proof of, of course, the Fed is bailing out the banks. The banks own the Fed. It's kind of like this public-private partnership. But uh, so it's great for conspiracy theorists, right? So if you get cornered by a conspiracy theorist at a party, yeah. you know, I, good I just luck. said ninety-eight percent of the Fed's profits go to the Treasury. Where's the other two percent go? You know, it goes to the this, dividends these or, dividends yeah. paid to the bank, but. Yeah. All right. So, if you're a conspiracy theorist out there, chew on that. There you go. Yeah. All right. Last fun, fascinating fact about the Fed. Ellen Greenspan, former very famous Fed chair, was an arrogant jerk. Well, maybe. Let's just end it at that. No, no, you have a story. You have a story for this. Ben Bernanke just wrote his uh, biography, his memoir. It's really good. And he, he talks a lot about how the Fed works and operates. And he talks about. There's this private door from the chairman's office into the Fed boardroom, where the board meets to make all the big decisions. And Greenspan would wait until everyone else was seated, and then make this grand entrance into the boardroom through his private door. No one uh, else could use that door. It was his door. And Bernanke said, uh, for the most part, he, he tried not to use it. He tried to be a little more humble in his job. Oh, that's nice. I don't know if, if that if makes you, if Greenspan you were, an arrogant jerk, if, by if the you way. Were, if, if you were the Fed chairman, would you, would you have a big ego? I think anyone in that room has a big ego. Yeah. In my, like any of those folks. If you're if you're on the the gov, like the economist who could put on there, they're all. So you think so you think Greenspan deserved that door? Oh, and I don't know about that. He was not being too too hubristic to tell people that they couldn't go through I that door. Arrogant jerk actually, is pretty strong. Bro actually has his own door to the Molly Full cafeteria that <laughs> only he uses, and he waits until know. all other employees are seated first, and then he makes a grand entrance. Sorry, what, how what what should we what else should we call him then? I don't know. I mean that that obviously has a certain amount of a certain amount of perhaps uh, self importance about your job. I don't know if it makes you an arrogant jerk. I do know where he would write his speeches. Anyone know the answer to that one? I don't know. The Bath toilet. Tub. Bathtub. Close. Oh. Yeah. Yep. The phrase irrational exuberance and other great Greenspanisms were written in a bathtub. Like on lots pen of, and paper? Like how do you of, do that? I hope so. I hope it wasn't on his laptop right? and he'd drop it in there. Lots of Warren Buffett's best investment ideas came to him in the bathtub as well. He was not with Alan Greenspan at the time. Some, a couple of them, though. <laughs> That's an adorable know. picture, though. <laughs> there are two little heads sticking up on either side of the bathtub, <laughs> typing away. What I do you think of this? There's lots of bubbles. Lots so of bubbles. many bubbles. <laughs> uh, all right, this has been five fun, fascinating facts to friends. Um, so, <laughs> fabulate to fabulate. To fabulate. Friends. So I don't think that was too bad as far as like going through the Fed because this is pretty like complicated stuff. Which yeah. one? That's good. Yeah, I'm sure you learned a thing or two. Me? I I learned a Everyone ton. Did. I learned. I think we well, all I, learned a lot. I, we all learned something. I think we all learned something. <laughs> Okay, everybody, stop what you're doing and pull out a dollar bill. What does it say on the top? Federal Reserve note, right? Morgan, why does it say that? Because the Fed uh, is really the sole controller of, of the currency. They're, they're backing the value of the dollar. That wasn't always the case in the past. If I remember correctly, don't they, don't they buy it from the mint? Like, the mint creates it, and then the Fed buys it. That sounds right. At like five cents a note, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's Anyways. good business. You can get it. You and I should try. You and I should try to. We open should that try that. That's a, that's a good one. <laughs> All right. So, what did it say before it said Federal Reserve note? Then. So I we were talking about this the other day. 
uh, not too long ago, I got uh, some change, and one of the dollar bills felt different. It's hard to tell, just the paper felt a little different, the color was a little different. At first, I thought it was probably a fake dollar, but I looked at it, and it was a 1957 dollar. It's in remarkably good condition. And at the top of it, rather than saying Federal Reserve note, like your dollar, most dollars do, it said silver certificate. And at the bottom, it says, uh, $1 in silver payable to the bearer on demand. So back in the day, you could actually take your cash to the U.S. Treasury and exchange it for silver. Now, that's obviously not the case anymore. That hasn't been the case since, early, like since, the, since the early 1970s. You could try to do it. But the U.S. currency used to be backed by physical commodities like gold and silver. And now it's really just backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. So that's why it says Federal Reserve note rather than silver certificate. I believe in America. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Well, here, here's why a dollar has value. A lot of people say, oh, it's just a piece of paper. It's not backed by gold. It doesn't have any value. Here's like the really big value of a dollar. If you want to do any business or work in America, you need to pay taxes. And the only thing you can pay taxes with are your dollars. And that's why dollars have a ton of value. So when people say it's just paper, it's just paper. No, it's, it is the only currency you can use in the strongest economy in the entire world. And that's why it's valuable. God bless America. Over. <laughs> All right, so we're going to test your guys' know-how knowledge about U.S. currency. Mm-hmm. These aren't too hard. You guys are going to be okay. This, these aren't too bad. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, first question. Sacagawea has the dollar coin, but in the history of the U.S., only one woman has graced the nation's paper currency. Who, who was it? It's not Susan B. Anthony. I was all ready for my Susan B. Anthony. I was ready for my Susie B's. Um, Molly Pitcher. Who's Molly Pitcher? She used to carry water during the Revolutionary War to people firing cannons. The Americans oh, firing cannons. Yeah. It's nice. It's not Miley Cyrus. It's not. It's actually close, though. Close. Martha Washington. Okay. She's uh. the only woman whose portrait has appeared on U.S. currency. Note, uh, it was on the face of the $1 silver certificate in 1886 and 1891, and she was on the back of the $1 silver certificate of 1896. More than you want to know. So, you guys already jumped the gun on my next question, which was, can you name another woman who has appeared on U.S. currency? Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony. Can you name the third? Ooh. Wait, so Sacagawea. Yeah, Susan B. Anthony. Yeah, one more. And Martha Washington. We just said that. Right? Oh, but one and one more. I haven't mentioned this okay. one was on a coin, I assume, because uh, Martha Washington was the only one on paper. Florence Nightingale. No, I, she was not associated with the government at all, or married to anyone, or even <laughs> like she was never alive. <laughs> she was. Never, she was made up. It's Minnie. Minnie Mouse. Uh, it's actually Helen Keller. Oh, okay, oh. that's interesting. Yeah. So, all right. What is the largest denomination note ever printed? I'm gonna say a million dollars, million dollar bill, hundred thousand. Hundred thousand. Morgan oh. gets I think it. They have one at the Smithsonian uh, Museum of American History in DC. So it had the. Uh, it was printed in 1934 and in 35. Portraits of Woodrow Wilson on the front. Um, the notes were never circulated to the public and were used solely for transactions among Federal Reserve banks. Hmm. All right. Which va- at what point in our value of coins does the coin actually become worth more than how much it costs to make it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I'd okay. say a quarter. So it costs the mint 11 cents, 11.18 cents to make a nickel, only 5.65 cents to make a dime, a penny costs 2.41 cents. I'm going out of order, and you are correct. It is the quarter and the dollar bill where they finally are worth more than what it costs to make them. All right. We should just round to the nearest quarter. People talk about getting rid of the penny. I say cut the dime and the nickel too. 
Let's go for it. Quarter. Let's just do it. Quarter. Does any does anyone get excited about even dimes and nickels? Like quarters, I feel like I could do something with these. I can I can use these for something practical. I can get on board with do, this. What are you gonna do with a dime? I can get on board with this. Nothing. Quarters. Good. All right. Okay. Let's start this campaign. Let's make it happen. All right. Last question. As of September 30, 2015, how much U.S. currency is in circulation? Ooh. 1.3 trillion. Bro, did you know that? I did know this. Oh, well, geez. Oh, I mean, okay. not knew it for this. I mean, I knew it because I read it. I don't know. 1.34 trillion. Oh, I, I. You know what I read this morning too? This is at like a. I forget what the article is about, but two thirds of that is outside the United States. That was my second point. I was going to make. Maybe you read the same article. Two thirds of U.S. is um, currency is held outside the U.S. Right. When they caught Saddam Hussein, you know what he had on him? A gun and U.S. currency. There you go. There's a really good episode of 99% Invisible, I believe, about U.S. currency and why it's so bland looking and plain, and why it has remained so consistent throughout the years. It's very good. I recommend. I also have. I was trying to think the other day. I really don't remember where I got this, but I have a 1929 five dollar bill at home. It's in a condition that you would expect of something that old, but it looks. uh, It's smaller, a little bit smaller, and the ink is bright green. But other than that, it's identical to a five dollar bill today. Huh. So that's almost a hundred years. Bro, do you have any interesting money? I don't. You know what I also have? I, <laughs> other than that $2 bill that I sent you guys the other day. That's what I was teeing you up to talk the about. The $2 bill signed by the actor who played the newsboy in the 80s classic Better Off Dead, known for the famous line, I want my $2. My sister ran in, in uh, California like two years ago and got him to autograph a $2 bill for me. I love it. A few years ago, I went to an economics conference. And for lunch tickets, they handed out actual, real $50 trillion Zimbabwean bills, which they're worth like 50 cents or something. It says $50 trillion on it. That's cool. That's what inflation does to you. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Just for a, a heads up, not next week, but the following week, we're taking off. So don't forget to send us your punishments for Robert Brokamp to help him motivate him to start doing his weekly state of the family finances report we've already got one really great idea so send us more ideas for for his punishment they will have to endure if he doesn't finally do this thank you morgan for joining us thanks That's fun. always uh, a pleasure morgan always a pleasure when you come and thank you to rick who edits the show mon- monetarily for robert brocamp i'm allison southwick stay foolish everybody do we get a clue uh i think uh I can, yeah, I mean, ugh, this, this.